Hello and welcome to the Yellow Chair Collective. We are a psychotherapy practice based in Los Angeles. My name is Jack Lamb and I am an outreach coordinator and a therapist at Yellow Chair Collective and I will be your host for this interview. So today we will be speaking on Asian racial stress and trauma with our fellow YCC therapist Sharon Kwan. So we thought this was an important and timely conversation as since the pandemic began, there's been a massive spike in hate crimes against Asians in America. And Sharon, who is with me today, is not only a psychotherapist, but also a guest writer for the Huffington Post. You've written pieces that have gone viral on Asian American identity and mental health. Welcome, Sharon. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so my name is Sharon Kwan. Um, I consider myself a 1.5 generation Korean American. Um, my family immigrated to the States when I was three years old. And since then, um, I think I've just adopted a sink or swim mentality, trying to navigate life in America, not just for myself, but also for my family as well. Um, I'm the oldest, and so I was the first to learn English and became my family's translator, which created a bit of a codependent family dynamic in that, um, you know, my parents' lives were filtered through me, their child. And um, my father, he's also a pastor, and my parents are very traditional and conservative. They're basically stuck in 90s Korea and haven't really gotten with the times. So growing up, the clash between collective and individualistic ideals was very hard for me to process. And um, this resulted in a lot of cognitive dissonance for me because I was just receiving different messages of how to live um, you know, at, at home versus what I was receiving out in the world. And so throughout my childhood and a lot of my adulthood, my family life was all about supporting my dad and his church, which again, resulted in a lot of codependency and religious trauma that made it really difficult for me to differentiate from my family and find my own path. And so for the longest time, I avoided them and felt pretty hopeless about my situation. And friends would tell me that I should talk to therapists all the time. But because of the stigma around it, and also because I thought therapy was really only for white people, I just didn't think that it could help me. And finally, I had to reach my rock bottom to really motivate me. And I found a Korean American therapist who was such a kindred spirit for me. And that was when I realized that there was hope after all. And that was really the start of me taking ownership of my life and really figuring out what my needs are instead of, you know, my family's needs. Um, it was a very freeing and spiritual experience for me, and I knew right then that this is what I wanted to do, and it got me on the path to becoming a therapist and drawing upon my own struggles and life lessons. Wow, that's, that's an incredibly powerful story, and the way that you even concised that. Maybe tied to what you're here to talk about today, like racial stress. You know, I have kind of a general idea of what it is, and I want to hear, based on like your experience and your perspective, how would you kind of characterize or describe racial stress? So racial stress is, you know, like racial trauma refers to the mental and emotional injury that's caused by encounters with racial bias and ethnic discrimination, racism, microaggressions, hate crimes, etc. And it's not limited to just hate crimes or acts of direct violence, 
but it can also be something as seemingly harmless like the slanty eye gesture or other forms of othering. This is dangerous because it sends the message, you know, you are not like us. You don't belong here. You're not as important. You are a perpetual foreigner. And this makes us easy targets for scapegoating, like with COVID and the rise of anti-Asian sentiment. So when we sense this danger, this evokes like trauma responses, like flight, fight, freeze, or fawn, um, which is the brain's way of telling your body that you're not safe. And you know, most of us are familiar with like flight, fight, and freeze, but the lesser known fawn response is probably one of the more often used responses for Asian Americans. And, um, you know, fawning, that's when you people please to defuse conflict in order to reestablish a sense of safety. Mm. Like when you laugh at a racist joke or a comment. And I think Asian Americans are so used to minimizing our pain so as not to rock the boat. It's how we survived our families and now how we survive racism out in the world. People who have experienced racial trauma, they have symptoms of PTSD, avoidance, hypervigilance, fear, anxiety, hopelessness, blame, hyperarousal. And trauma also doesn't have to come from something you directly experienced. You know, like after the Atlanta shooting, I was like terrified of going grocery shopping in Koreatown and really avoided it. And I also stopped walking in walking and taking public transit because every time I watched the news or scroll through Instagram, I saw another attack of an innocent Asian person on the street. Now, whenever I'm in public by myself, I feel very hypervigilant and can't help but scan my environment for, you know, signs of danger. And so this racial stress and trauma really just takes a toll on your body and your mental health. Wow. I think you've condensed so much information in, <laughs> in there. And I just want to like dig in and unpack it. Uh, this is such interesting and powerful ways of understanding, right? It's not just the hate crimes, you know, for a long time, there's these microaggressions and stereotypes and biases that um, build up to this trauma responses. I wanted to talk about like one of your Huffington Post articles. It's from, this is what no one tells you about being Asian in America in 2021. You wrote about an experience where an Uber driver singled you out in your group of friends, pointing to your eyes and making a slanty gesture and said that uh, you can't be from here. Where are you really from? I want to read a little bit of your article before I ask the next question, if that's okay. You wrote, I sat still frozen in discomfort and silence as my friends giggled. I began to replay similar scenes from my childhood in my head while sitting in a car with another person of color othering and jeering me while my non-Asian friends stifled their laughter. I couldn't help but wonder, why does everyone else find me and my experience so funny? After many years of enduring a special kind of racial trauma, I learned the answer. This is what no one tells you about being Asian in America in 2021. Our world minimizes us and we minimize ourselves. Whew. I think that's so powerful because I think it gives us the context of the kind of stressors you're talking about that we face and then the kind of responses that we have. So I, I guess my question is, why is it important that we talk about racial stress and racial trauma? The first step, even in therapy, is self-awareness. If we don't know what's going on, if we kind of just push it aside and go on about our lives, how is anything ever going to change? In that moment in the car, I was frozen. I couldn't bring myself to stick up for myself. Felt like I couldn't stick up for myself because everybody thought it was funny. And so not only did I freeze, but then I ended 
Stefani because I didn't want to make everyone else uncomfortable. And I feel like that is also something that I learned growing up in an Asian family where the most important thing was for the good of the family, the good of everybody, even if that meant sacrificing my own needs. So in these big life situations, I kind of end up repeating all of these patterns and behaviors that have come from childhood, especially with microaggressions. There's always like impact versus intent. Like, Mm -hmm. did that Uber driver know that that was the impact? Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like his intent was it's harmless, just asking where you're from. But the impact was, you know, you're singling me out. You're making me feel like I don't belong, that I'm not an equal participant, an equal American like everybody else in the car and that there's something wrong with me. You know, racism isn't always black and white. And I think racism towards Asian, Asian Americans is going to look different than racism towards, you know, a black or Latinx person, because our experiences are just not the same. Our backgrounds are just not the same. And especially with Asian Americans, our proximity to whiteness, I think it makes it really easy for people to, you know, minimize our experiences and to say that, you know, well, that's not racist. Like, I didn't mean anything by that, even though the impact is pretty painful. And it's something that, you know, we kind of have grown up to just have to stifle. Yeah, I feel like that contextualizes what you wrote so well, um, especially the part where you said, you know, our world minimizes us and we minimize ourselves. Right here sometimes, especially in kind of discussions about racism, Asians in America getting left out. In one of your articles, you wrote this quote from Stephen Yun, um, the actor in Minari, Sometimes I wonder if the Asian American experience is what it's like when you're thinking about everyone else, but nobody else is thinking about you. You know, just from our cultures, right? A lot of the times being taught that maybe to not speak up as much to be compliant. I don't know if that's the word. Mm -hmm. I want to go into another thing that you wrote about in one of your articles was um, that you grew up hating being Korean and hating being around other Asians. I was wondering what changed. So much of my upbringing was rooted in church. And since so many Korean immigrants seek community at church, I really thought that all Koreans were Christian and out to judge me. And so because I felt so judged, I ended up doing the very same thing back and judge them. And I thought that all of my struggles with my family was because they were so Korean. And as I began to assimilate and become more Americanized, I just started to harbor a lot of internalized racism and resentment towards my culture. And Kathy Park Hong, the author of Minor Feelings, she writes, um, racial self-hatred is seeing yourself the way the whites see you, which turns you into your own worst enemy. And this quote really resonated with me because I realized that this was what I was doing all along. You know, I used to be so embarrassed by my parents, their accent, our food, our smell. I hated being associated with Asians and had very few Asian friends growing up. And I just wanted to fit in. And for me at the time, that meant being seen as white, which was an impossible goal that I was striving for. And it wasn't until I went back to Korea for the first time since leaving. Um, that was when I was around my mid twenties where everything changed. And for the first time in my adulthood, I saw myself the way that Koreans saw me. I belonged. 
And it also helps that um, my family on my mom's side doesn't go to church at all and they still love me regardless. And so being shown that unconditional love and acceptance was pretty life-changing. And so I started to see the world and myself differently. And so these days I feel so proud to be Korean and also American. And you know, those few years that I spent living in Seoul in my mid twenties were so healing for me. And I really feel like that I finally got to understand my culture and background outside of church and on my own terms. I love that. And I think that I've heard that experience so much, right? Like kind of that internalized racism. And I want to break that down a little bit more because I think that that is a huge part of how sometimes a lot of Asian people can play into white supremacy is that internalized racism part. And when you were talking about how um, you kind of saw yourself through the lens of like the white perspective, I guess I'm just kind of curious more so about like the change when you went to Korea, like how did that affect your... Okay, yeah, when I went when I went to Korea, I mean, I wasn't seeing myself the way that white people see me. You know, I adopted a new, a different kind of lens where it was one of acceptance, one of belonging, where I, I wasn't othered. If I was walking in a crowd, I looked like everybody else. Nobody could single me out because of the way that I look, because of, you know, my ethnicity. And because of that, that sense of comfort and belonging I think that really paved the way for me to just accept myself that this is who I am. I can't change the way I look, can't change where I come from, you know, and where I come from is a beautiful place where, you know, people, we love our food. We love, we love each other. We're very collective. And I think being around that kind of um, collective spirit was what really paved that path for me of like, oh, this is a belonging that I always needed, that I was searching for. Now, now I finally fit in. Thank you. That's amazing. And I think I, I see kind of like a larger picture that you're painting too, in the sense that your experience here as an Asian person in America, the microaggressions and the othering is a form of the racial stress that you were talking about. And that can kind of impact it and you kind of think, oh, if maybe if I wasn't Asian, then I wouldn't be susceptible to these kinds of stressors and attacks almost. In a sense, it's a very understandable, almost like a defense mechanism, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if everybody is continuing to tell me that I don't belong, I'm different, you're not from here, you know, I think every Asian American can relate to that, qu that question of where are you from? You know, where are you really from? That subtle, like, oh, but you're not from here. You, got, you can't be from here that kind of automatic questioning that I, that I experienced, you know, growing up in America always just made me feel like I don't belong here. And that made me want to even more find a way to belong. Right. Like overcompensate. Wow. What's really, really, I think, powerful about that is I feel like every time the term racism comes up, sometimes people immediately instinctually want to distance themselves from it right like oh I'm not racist I would never be racist I'm a person of color how could I be racist whereas I think when you tell your story I hear like there's no shame in internalizing racism because it's a very understandable human thing to do because we were seeking belonging we we're kind of seeking acceptance and you know in a I guess for lack of better words in a racist society that's how you kind of fit in is you internalize the racism yeah, I mean, that's what white supremacy does. You know, 
that's the definition, you know, whiteness is supreme. And that's the message that I was given from such a young age, not only from society, but parents too. And so I think growing up, it just became so ingrained in me. Okay, the goal is to be as white as possible. Ooh, oh my gosh, I'm just, I'm like shaking. I'm like, wow, this is, <laughs> this is some very big stuff that we're talking about. And I think I want to delve into it deeper because you've also talked about racial trauma, especially with, you know, the Atlanta shooting, especially with the trauma symptoms, how you feel unsafe, you know, going on the streets. And I kind of want to touch on that a little bit more. Can you tell us about, you know, your experience, how you were impacted and for anyone else who, because I'm sure a lot of people were also impacted by that event and, and all the violent attacks that's been happening to Asians in America, what are some things that they can look out for, you know, in their bodies and their thoughts in their behaviors as to whether they're impacted by this kind of racial trauma? One of the easiest um, signs to recognize is avoidance you know, avoiding doing things that you used to feel safe doing before, such as going to the grocery store or going out for a walk or taking public transit. You know, if you start to feel that sense of like, oh, this isn't safe, like, oh, I can't do that. Like that is a very tell, like very uh, telltale sign of trauma. Um, also another sign would be um, hypervigilance, you know, starting to, starting to really scan your environment to see, you know, what's out there. Um, you know, even going to the grocery store, it used to just be, you know, you, you go and you get your things, but now it's like, you have to look around to see if there's any danger around. Um, I think that um, I've also had a lot of clients, you know, who have struggled with um, just even going out, you know, feeling unsafe out in the world and who have just avoided going anywhere and just kind of try to stay home. Um, and I think, you know, with COVID and being home so much, um, it was kind of easy, easier in the beginning to avoid these things without even know that I was avoiding it. But now that, you know, things are opening up a little bit more and people are going out more, it's interesting because I feel like a lot of my non-Asian friends, you know, some of them are still worried about, you know, COVID, Delta variant, things like that. But I feel like for Asian Americans, yeah, we have that worry too. But even bigger for me personally is the anti-Asian sentiment and, you know, feeling like, oh, there's like danger everywhere. I hear that. And I think a lot of us tend to think about trauma as this like one big event that's like catastrophic, right? We associate it with military, like veterans have trauma, PTSD, huge car accidents or freak accidents or fires and stuff like that. But, you know, with racial stress and trauma, it doesn't feel like it's happening to you directly, but it also does at the same time, which is kind of weird because it's happening to our community. So it's almost like a collective trauma. It's so true about the hypervigilance and the avoidance because I remember even just going on a road trip and I remember my mom being so worried and she was like, oh, be careful. You know, if you're stopping for gas, you know, look around, you know, be careful. Maybe you should wear a hat. And I was like, why would I wear a hat? And she was like, just in case if people see that you're Asian and I'm like, I don't, the hat's not going to change the fact that I look Asian. And I go, <laughs> uh, so oh I'm thinking, what 
you know, what is some advice or some wisdom that you could share for any of the people watching or listening to this who might be struggling with racial stress and trauma? Yeah, my word of advice is you are not alone. You know, racial trauma is a real thing that has impacted the way we think, the way we feel, and the way we act in the world. At the start of this year, I felt incredibly alone and isolated because I really don't have that many Asian friends to turn to about these feelings. That's actually what motivated me to write the HuffPost article, This is What No One Tells You About Being Asian in America. The responses that I got from people all over the country was so incredibly validating and made me feel so seen and heard. It also made me realize how valuable community and social support is. And so I made an effort to really connect with Asian Americans who also struggle with these feelings. And I started going to and facilitating support groups for Asian Americans, which was just so healing and validating for me. I think it was very validating for me personally to read your Huffington Post articles as well. And you were talking about the um, support groups. I'm assuming these are the Asian American experience groups that we're facilitating at Yellow Chair. <laughs> yes. So for those who are looking for more support, uh, Yellow Chair Collective offers an ongoing support group for those um, who want to unpack the Asian American experience. Um, we have new cohorts starting every month, so you can head to our website and sign up. Um, I helped develop and uh, facilitated a group and felt such a huge sense of belonging and camaraderie that I've never really felt before. It was just nice to have a space to vent and process with people with uh, similar backgrounds and struggles where we didn't have to explain ourselves and we still just got it. And so I highly recommend engaging in a support group if you don't have an Asian American community that is accessible to you. Thank you. And we're almost at the end of our time. So if people want to follow your work or see what you're up to, where can they find you? Um, you can find me on the Yellow Chair Collective website. Um, I also have my own website, SharonQuan.com. And you can also find me on Instagram. I am Talk with Sharon. All right. Well, thank you so much, Sharon, for taking your time for answering our questions. And um, I hope this has been valuable for you to share and for everyone watching and listening as well. <laughs>